Hello, my Rebels. Today I take you through the crazy case of Jerry Diaz, until recently the president of Canada's largest private sector union called Unifor, taking a $50,000 COVID bribe. The union just suspended him for it, although they covered that up for a few weeks. I think it raises a lot of questions. Who else is being bribed? Who else is paying bribes? What decisions at Unifor were made because of this bribe? This is in some ways like discovering that a judge has been bribed. It means so many things have to be redone. I'll take you through it in today's show. I'm deeply troubled by it. Let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus first, though. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com. Click subscribe, eight bucks a month to get the video version of this podcast, plus four other weekly podcasts. My show is daily, plus we have four weekly shows. That's a lot of stuff for just eight bucks a month. And we need the money because we don't take a dime from Trudeau, and I really think it shows. Please go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe to show your support. Thanks. Here's today's podcast. Tonight, the head of Canada's largest union is caught taking a $50,000 bribe from a COVID company. Is that why he refused to fight against vaccine mandates? It's March 24th, and this is the Answer Levant Show. Why should others go to jail why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government is because it's my bloody right to do so. You know Jerry Diaz, right? He's the head of Unifor, one of the largest unions in Canada. Though you'd be forgiven for thinking he was the deputy leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. He's thick as thieves with Trudeau, very political. It was Diaz who turned Unifor and his dues-paying members into de facto members of the Liberal Party by conscripting them and their union dues to fight against the Conservatives in the last few elections, for which he was handsomely reported by Trudeau. Unifor has hundreds of thousands of members, most of them in the private sector, but some government workers too. They were formed in part from the old Canadian Auto Workers Union. Lots of energy workers, forestry workers, fisheries workers, and I think this is important, media workers, too. Unifor claims to represent 11,000 people in the media. That's so many. And if you're in any doubt about their political leanings, just look at the website homepage uh, for the Unifor media folks. You would be forgiven for thinking that that's the Liberal Party homepage. If you scroll down this Unifor media page, you will see that these journalists who present to you every day in the newspaper and every night on TV as neutral, they're actually campaigning. Look at them. They're asking you, the public, to pressure politicians to give them more bailout money. So you can see the problem here, the conflict of interest here. They're pretending to be neutral and fair, but they have a personal interest in the media bailout. So if you are a politician who is for giving them free money... They'll likely lavish support on you. If not, well, it's a bit of a shakedown. It's a bit of a protection racket, isn't it? Andrew Scheer failed the test. So did Aaron O'Toole, 
both abandoned their anti-CBC platforms immediately, but actually much more troubling is they tailored their political answers to policy questions to please the media. Uh, let's see if Pierre Polyev can hold out against them. Here, here's what Pierre Polyev told Alexa Lavoie the other day. Vous avez parlé que justement que vous vouliez euh, arrêter de subventionner euh, CBC euh, et euh, également je voulais savoir aussi votre position par rapport aussi à Radio Canada qui est euh, la version euh, francophone du Québec. Oui. Et euh, c'est quoi votre plan par rapport à ça euh, Le plan que j'ai pour ça pour va dévoiler pendant la campagne à la chefferie. Mais c'est vrai que je vais euh, couper le budget de CBC parce que c'est un grand gaspillage. Euh, il gaspille énormément de l'argent et Presque tout ce que fait le CBC anglais, c'est déjà disponible sur le marché. Les gouvernements devraient faire seulement ce que le marché ne peut pas faire. Mais presque tout ce qu'on voit au CBC, à la télé, sur l'Internet, c'est déjà disponible dans d'autres sources. Donc, je reconnais que pour RDI, c'est un peu différent parce que les, il n'y a pas autant d'options en français qu'il existe en anglais. Donc, euh, mais pour le CBC, il y a beaucoup de gaspillage. Je vais le couper. Je vais, on va sauver l'argent et on va permettre les gens de choisir leur propre source médiatique. So the boss of the whole union was Jerry Diaz. And look at the news. This is incredible. Former Unifor boss Jerry Diaz accepted $50,000 from supply of COVID-19 rapid test kits, union alleges. See, what's funny is that for weeks, the media party, that is Unifor reporters, said, oh, no, 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 no. He, he's retiring for health reasons. But did you think Unifor reporters would act accurately report about Unifor? especially news that their boss took a bribe to promote the COVID agenda. But really, how is that any different from the media party that is bribed all the time by Justin Trudeau to follow his agenda? But this was a secret payoff. Let me read from the Globe story, many of whose employees are the Globe Mail uniform members themselves. Former Unifor leader Jerry Diaz has been accused of breaching the union's code of ethics by accepting $50,000 from a supplier of COVID-19 rapid test kits in exchange for promoting the products to employers of union members. Unifor's National Executive Board said on Wednesday, yeah, um, that's more than just breaching a code of ethics, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Let me read a little more. Mr. Diaz, who announced his retirement as national president on March 11th, citing a debilitating sciatic nerve issue. <laughs> um, yeah, that's not what it was. Uh, we'll face a hearing before the board as early as April. In a statement on Wednesday, his first in more than five weeks, Mr. Diaz said he would check into a rehabilitation facility for substance abuse issues. He said he has been coping with the nerve problem through painkillers, sleeping pills, and alcohol all of which had impaired his judgment in recent months. Got it. I'm going to try that out if I'm ever caught committing a crime. Officer, I know it looks really bad, but you see, I, I have a bad back, and I'm going to check into a clinic, and can we just forget the fact that, you know, I took a $50,000 secret bribe? I love this part of the story. 
Mr. Diaz was asked to participate in the investigation, but did not, the union said. In his statement, which was released as Unifor was holding its news conference, Mr. Diaz said he was unable to take part in the investigation on the advice of his physician. Got it, officer. You know, I'd really like to answer your questions about how I was speeding, and I really would like to take the breathalyzer test, but my doctor says I can't, so case closed, doc. Oh, my gosh. Let me read some more from the story. At a news conference, Unifor National Secretary Treasurer um, Lana Payne said Mr. Diaz accepted the $50,000 from the supplier of the test kits at some point before January 20th, 2022. Ms. Payne said an external investigation determined that, quote, on the balance of probabilities, he had breached the union's constitution by promoting the test kits in December 2021 and January 2022 to various Unifor employers Mr. Diaz allegedly recommended the suppliers test kits directly to employers and got Unifor staff members to promote the supplier, she said. What's so incredible here is that the union will not say who the bribe paying company is. They're keeping it a secret. Why? Why would they possibly do that? I mean, if the bribe was bad enough that they sacked their president... Surely it's bad enough to disclose who paid the bribe? Unless they want it kept secret for some reason, what could that reason possibly be? Is it at some politically connected company? It's not the company owned by the husband of the defense minister who gets all these government contracts, is it? Did the company bribe other people too? Is that why? Did this secret company bribe other people in uniform? In other unions, maybe? Did they, bribe, did they bribe other liberals? I mentioned that this is bigger than just violating Unifor's rules against taking bribes. See, Unifor does more things than just campaign for Justin Trudeau. I know it seems like it doesn't. Um, it supposedly represents workers. I mean, that's the whole point of a union. The idea is if there's one powerful employer, he could boss around any individual employee. You got 100 employees, you boss them around one at a time, they have no chance. But if these 100 employees bind together collectively, they can even power imbalance. They can protect themselves, you know, altogether. They can negotiate collectively. But it also protects individual members who have problems along the way. If they're picked on by the boss, if they're fired even, they can file a grievance through the union. The union will effectively give them a lawyer to fight for them. It's, it's a powerful rationale in theory and sometimes in practice. But what happens if the union bosses don't actually work for the dues-paying members? What if they're actually secretly working for some COVID company? Because Jerry Diaz had a legal duty to represent his members' interests, and to push back against unreasonable demands from the bosses. That's, you know, the whole point. That's his one job. So you got 300,000 people who have contracts with companies called collective agreements with the bosses, and suddenly the bosses in many of those companies, they just say, hey, get an injection or be fired. Now, that's very likely a human rights violation, Companies have to reasonably accommodate people who have medical issues or whatever, issues of conscience. But put aside the law. 
it, it, it's simply not in the, in the collective agreements. If you have a contract with someone that's signed and sealed, and then one side suddenly demands something extra, well, that, that's just not on. What are you going to give me for it in return? You want to crack open the agreement and add some jab requirement. All right. What reasonable measures will you bring in to protect those who want to opt out? At the very least, it's a negotiation, right? For those individual members who want more, maybe you fight agreements for them. And frankly, you could even go on strike. I mean, if one side's breaking the deal, the company side, I mean, that's the whole point of a union. But Jerry Diaz was not interested in any of those things. He couldn't sell out his members fast enough. I always assumed it was just because he was a Trudeau liberal hack. I assumed it was just his personal loyalty to Trudeau. That was first, and he was a labor man second. I mean, look at this. <laughs> the bottom line is, if an employer comes out with a mandatory vaccination policy, unless you have a bona fide medical reason, it will be deemed legitimate. So, just so you just given up. So no religious exemption, for example. No exemption for conscientious objectors. And most obviously, no, no objections for... People who contracted COVID-19, got sick, then got better, and now have natural immunity. So you're, you're just not even going to fight at all? Like, you're paid to fight. You're just not even going to try. Why would Jerry Diaz sell out, surrender without even a fight? Like, he is paid to fight. That's really his only job is to fight. He was literally boasting about it. Here's the Toronto Star article mentioned that tweet. It was written uh, by uniform members of the Star. Um, here's what he says, and then let me just read this first line. It's, it's great. The story is called Uniform President Jerry Diaz Supports Mandatory Vaccination Against COVID-19. Uniform President Jerry Diaz, baffled by union pushback against mandatory vaccination policies, says supporting vaccine mandates is a way to honor union members who lost their lives to COVID-19. I love this first sentence. Let me read this first sentence. It is so amazing in light of the bribery scandal. The head of Canada's largest private sector union is challenging other labor leaders to be more honest with their members and to support COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Yeah. Hey, guys, be honest, okay? Stop fighting forced vaccines on behalf of your members. By the way, plenty of unions did fight. Not enough, but some of them fought and won. I'm not going to list all the examples, but just one that I happen to know about is the Hamilton police. They don't force their cops to be jabbed. I mean, they have to take some occasional tests. Uh, I'm not sure if they even enforce that anymore. But not everyone sold out their union members without a fight like Jerry Diaz did. Oh, my God, did Jerry Diaz sell them out? And he had the nerve to call others dishonest for not even trying Sure looks different in the light of the news of his bribery scandal, doesn't it? Like, like this tweet by Jerry Diaz that I dug up. Today's announcement is crucial in keeping us safe as we continue to fight against the fourth wave. Vaccine certificate systems will help to protect workers and speed up the post-pandemic economic recovery. So he's pushing the whole, the whole COVID thing. Like he's some sort of, I don't know, honorary public health officer. His one job is to fight for his union members' rights. But it sure looks like he was fighting for, I don't know, Pfizer shareholders, was he? I mean, seriously, was he? 
they've been caught in all sorts of scandals and bribes and frauds. What, was he getting paid by Pfizer too? Real question. I mean, here's a question for you. The $50,000 bribe he was paid to push some COVID agenda, and he did, and some of the people he pressed bought whatever he was selling. Do you really think that crooked company was the only company in Canada doing that, the only company paying bribes? And do you think Jerry Diaz was the only person they bribed? Huge country, 10 provinces, three territories, public health officers everywhere, hospitals everywhere, politicians everywhere. Do you think that Jerry Diaz was the only person they approached with a bribe? Just Jerry Diaz. You think so, eh? I think it's right that Unifor is looking into this. Their boss was crooked. But surely there needs to be a serious investigation done independently into who else that company contacted, from MPs and senators to mayors to public health officers themselves to all those annoying TV COVID fear-mongering doctors. Were they all doing what they did out of the goodness of their hearts? Or were they bribed like Jerry Diaz? But back to the union for a moment. There were some people in the union who disagreed with forced vaccinations, obviously. I'd like you to meet John Rakich, a union member for 38 years. I want to show you a video that he made. It's five minutes long, but it's powerful. His line right at the end really connected with me. I watched this video a few months ago when it came out, but I watched it again now, knowing what I know about Jerry Diaz and his bribe. Take a look. It's, it's five minutes, but it'll go by quickly. Take a look. I'm doing this video because I've been asked by a, a lot of union members to document my experience with the, the National Union. In, in March of this year, 2021, I was uh, appointed as a, a coordinator for General Motors for Ergonomics. I, I had uh, been appointed to that position because I had gained the confidence uh, of my former chairperson who recommended me for that position. So I took that position. I think it was August 23rd, we had a work action at de Havilland and we had to fill out some, some um, online paperwork and we had to indicate what our VAC status was. I put on that paperwork that I prefer not to say because that's private medical information. And then on uh, August 23rd, that same day, I was told not to show up uh, for the work action. On August 24th, uh, the union endorsed a statement on VAX mandates for all Unifor staff and events. We had till September 30th to declare our attestation. So on September 30th, I sent the letter, which I have here, to the National Union. And I told them that I was, I was not sharing my own private medical information that was mine. It was protected under privacy laws. I sent that off on the 30th. On October 4th, I received a letter from um, Jerry Diaz, our national president, and he said, uh, he, he, he basically told me that uh, the, the statutes that I referenced in my letter uh, did not apply at all. And he said that I served, uh, according to the collective agreement, I served um, under the national president uh, by appointment and I could be terminated at any time. And then he instructed his uh, assistant to terminate me as of October 8th.
So October 8th, I was terminated from the National for not declaring my uh, status. And then uh, I went back into the plan. I think it was on the 12th. It was a Tuesday. And then the 13th, uh, what happened was uh, we heard that General Motors had instituted vac vaccination mandates as well. Well, I'd like to address all of our union brothers and sisters, and uh, vaccinated or unvaccinated, and say that historically the union has fought for all of our rights. And uh, we are not anti-vax people. There are actually a lot of vaccinated people that are taking the position that we're taking and are willing to lose their jobs, believe it or not, because they don't believe in the mandates. They don't believe in people being forced to take a medical procedure against their will. And so to the people that are vaccinated, uh, I would just ask that you look deep in your heart and, and you look at your fellow employees, those ones that I just mentioned that are young and that have taken on mortgages and have little babies, and, and uh, uh, really look at them and, and, and look deep in your heart and, and, and ask yourself, is it right to destroy their lives because they won't uh, take a medical procedure against their will? And at some point in time, vaccinated people as well are going to have to make a decision because if, if, if you look deeply inside of uh, Unifor's COVID-19 prevention policy, you'll find that they have uh, basically stated in there, if you work for the national or your coordinator, the moment that public health um, decrees that you have to have a third booster, then that's going to become part of their policy and, and a fourth booster and a fifth and a sixth. So where are you going to draw the line? Because we, we don't see any end to this. Uh, so uh, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, we're all auto workers, we're all, we're all uniform members, and, and we shouldn't be divided on this issue. We should do what's right. There's a lot of things I'd like to say, but uh, I'll keep this concise. Uh, we've heard our, our, president's nas our national president's statements over and over again about how you know, they've looked at the law and there's nothing they can do about this. And you know, uh, I've talked to a lot of union members and we call BS on this. There was a time when women were not allowed to vote. And it was actually against the law, but the law was changed. Just because something is against the law doesn't mean the law is correct. And in this case, uh, we saw that the law was changed. Uh, everybody's familiar with the story of Rosa Parks, where she wouldn't give her seat up for a, for a white person on the bus. That was actually against the law at the time. And so if the activists would have looked at that and said, it's against the law, there's nothing we could do about it, we would still be living with that kind of tyranny and that kind of segregation. I'd like to say to, to, to our national executive, to, 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 our, to the membership about our national executive, stop making excuses about the law and do what's right. That's what we've always endeavored to do, or that's what we've said we've always endeavored to do. I've been a uniform member, or, or I've been a union member at General Motors for 38 years, and and we've never heard such garbage come out of our national that there's nothing we can do about it because it's against the law. So a long time ago, a, a union rep said something to me that was very profound. He said, if the union and the company are saying the same thing, one of them is not necessary. So yeah, Jerry Diaz took a bribe and the bribe corrupted his office and he did what the bribe payers told him to do. He pushed their COVID products, of, of course, that had something to do with his insane decision to abandon 300,000 members and just feed them to the employers. But look at the case of John Rackage, where Jerry Diaz himself personally stepped in to fire the guy unilaterally. Now, back when it happened, it just looked like Jerry Diaz was running errands for Justin Trudeau. Uh, Jerry Diaz was a top-down bully. He's a bit of a tyrant. He's uninterested in other points of view. It was rough and unfair, but I don't know. 
Maybe it was just his legitimate point of view, but now it looks very, very different, doesn't it? Now it looks like Jerry Diaz infected every decision made by Unifor these past two years during the pandemic. Who was fired and who wasn't? Whose grievance was accepted by the union and whose was thrown out by the union? Thousands of people's lives were changed directly or indirectly because of Jerry Diaz, who we now know made decisions based on a bribe. Every one of those decisions needs to be redone. It would be as if you discovered a judge was accepting money from prosecutors to convict a bunch of people. You would let them out of jail and, and do the trial over again, wouldn't you? Because in that way, Jerry Diaz wasn't just another political activist. He was a quasi-judicial power. He had a public duty. It wasn't just a duty to Unifor itself. It was a public role he was placing. He was like a mini-judge. He took union dues from people. He had the power to, to act within the collective agreement. He promised to uphold his members' rights, but he secretly took other money for other interests, and he violated his members' rights. These need to be done over again. And maybe that's why the union is being so secretive, why they had their cover-up for weeks, claiming it was just a health issue. Maybe that's why they're not saying who the bribe payer is. What else are they covering up? Who else was in on it? Is Unifor, are they deleting records? Are they purging their computers and servers of the evidence, Hillary Clinton style? Or are they deleting emails to and from Jerry Diaz? Emails that might show the extent of what he did and how that affected his decisions. I want to see what Canada's labor minister had to say. Well, that was a mistake. He's one of the stupidest men in Parliament. Seamus O'Regan in his name. <laughs> uh, not a peep on all this. In fact, this is the last thing I could see him mentioning about Jerry Diaz. A lot of people who'd been working closely together during the height of COVID are now seeing each other for the first time in years. Count me and Jerry Diaz among them. Great to see you again, Jerry. No question workers will lead the way in this recovery. They're friends. They're chums. They're in it together. Seamus O'Regan didn't take any money, did he? I mean, just asking. Jerry Diaz makes sure the 300,000 union members serve the liberal government's purposes, not the other way around. As John Rakich told us, if the union and the company are saying the same thing, <laughs> one of them isn't needed. Stay with us for more. Well, I like to think that if we were in the United States, the First Amendment of their Bill of Rights would give us more legal defenses against government censorship than we have in Canada with our weaker Charter of Rights and our obedient courts. But sometimes I look at how the U.S. is treating the most effective journalists down there. I think, for example, Project Veritas that specializes in undercover stings. And I wonder, because look at this video recently released by James O'Keefe, the boss of Project Veritas, I think this is even crazier than what we put up with here in Canada. Take a look. 
Project Veritas has just obtained documents showing the SDNY was spying on Project Veritas journalists well before the FBI raided the homes of our journalists last November, secretly reading our emails, concealing that from the court in our case against the SDNY. In November 2021, the FBI raids our homes and seizes 47 electronic devices, including cell phones, laptops, and thumb drives. Within five days, U.S. District Court Judge Annalisa Torres ordered the Southern District of New York to pause its review of my devices, and within a month, ordered the SDNY to turn our seized materials over to a special master who had supervised the SDNY's review to protect our First Amendment and journalistic privileges. Recently obtained legal documents from Microsoft Corporation reveal that despite Judge Torres's orders, between November 2020 and April 2021, the Department of Justice went to six magistrates and obtained a series of secret warrants, orders, and a subpoena to surreptitiously collect privileged communications and contacts of eight American journalists, myself included, from Microsoft. The DOJ even sought and obtained numerous secrecy orders preventing Microsoft from disclosing the surveillance to anyone. The SDNY also went around Judge Torres and the Special Master and obtained two secrecy orders after the Special Master had been appointed. The SDNY's surveillance of Project Veritas journalists was done as part of the DOJ's unprecedented investigation into Ashley Biden's diary. The documents collected from these email accounts date back as far as January 2020, eight months before we even knew the diary existed. While the special master litigation proceeded, the government apparently misled the court by omission, by not disclosing that it had already obtained other privileged materials. The SDNY was ordered to turn over all materials to the special master. They didn't. The SDNY was ordered to stop reviewing our materials. They didn't. The SDNY has an obligation to be honest with the court. They weren't. Absolutely shocking. Just for your information, SDNY stands for the Southern District of New York. DOJ, of course, is the U.S. Department of Justice, and you know the FBI. Well, that's just absolutely shocking. And joining us now via Skype from Project Veritas headquarters is R.C. Maxwell, the press secretary to that organization. R.C., what a pleasure to meet you. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Um, let's just slow down for a second. This is all about a diary, a diary of someone named Ashley Biden. What's her connection to Joe Biden? Well, thanks for having me on, Ezra. And, um, you know, this is unprecedented action here by the United States government. Um, just to take your audience back, Ashley Biden is the daughter of then presidential candidate Joe Biden. Project Veritas was sought after by a tipster who told us that they were in possession of a diary and that the contents of it are newsworthy. We obtained the diary as many news organizations would, and we attempted to corroborate the details of the diary. We could not. We then turned the diary over to law enforcement, and many of your audience may know that as a result of our journalistic action, um, President Biden's DOJ decided to execute search warrants on the homes of journalists, a trio of journalists, including our founder, CEO James O'Keefe. Now, that's a problem here in this country because journalists are afforded journalistic privilege. This is something that would not happen to the New York Times or to CNN. It has happened to us. 
And as you just saw, we have just learned that despite those unheralded action, the Department of Justice went a step further and secretly obtained our emails, hundreds of thousands of email documents, our journalist source contacts, even our Uber information. They did this secretly. They used a gag order to bound Microsoft to secrecy. And this is a problem because a federal judge told them that everything must go through a filter team and that they must use a supervisor known as a special master to oversee their investigation of us because we do have journalistic privilege. The DOJ didn't think we had journalistic privilege. A judge rejected that argument, and it seems the DOJ has decided to continue to go behind that judge's back and seek gag orders to bind Microsoft to secrecy. And thankfully, they told us what the government was up to. So uh, how did you actually find out? Because I, I saw on the screen there in that very well-produced segment uh, by James O'Keefe that uh, Microsoft was told, don't tell anyone we're going through your customers' records. Are, are you able to tell us how you were tipped off to that? Because that terrifies me. Who knows if our own RCMP is going through all of our emails with a similar order? Who, who lets you know that these shenanigans were afoot? Are you able to say? Um, I am able to say uh, that it was Microsoft, someone high-ranking within Microsoft Corporation, uh, and someone within their legal team. What they actually disclosed to us, they gave us an unfiled motion, something that they used for internal purposes. They gave us access to that motion, and in that motion, Microsoft let the Department of Justice have it. They said this is, is problematic action. They pointed to the very highly criticized action of the DOJ in November for raiding us, they pointed to that action and said, see, we told you there was a problem with this. This is proof of that. We want to immediately go and let our client know. And they did so to us within hours because the Department of Justice relented. And they relented because they know they have no grounds to continue seeking gag orders on a tech corporation to seek journalistic privileged communication. So this could be happening in Canada because if it's happening in the United States to a multi-million dollar media company, it can certainly happen to the average everyday citizen. That's incredible. Now, um, the, the fact that Ashley Biden, the president's daughter, it, it's her diary in question, it immediately makes me think of Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, whose laptop was a stunning trove of shocking emails and photographs and videos and, and just it was incredible. And we saw the tech companies censor that when the New York Post broke that story um, shortly before the 2020 elections, Twitter and others kicked into gear, suspended the account of the New York Post, one of the oldest newspapers in America. And you saw dozens of people, I call it the deep state, like former CIA and intelligence directors saying, no, no, that's just Russian disinformation. They managed to stop that Hunter Biden laptop from becoming widely discussed. I don't know if it would have turned the U.S. election, but it was certainly damaging. I immediately think of that when, when I hear that the president's daughter has a diary, too. Are you, a, are you able to or have others or has Project Veritas? You say you tried to corroborate what was in the diary. Are you able to say what was in the diary that you thought was in the public interest? Well, you know, apparently by the virtue of these investigations and actions from the Department of Justice, we can only assume the diary is real. Um, and, uh, you know, the contents, you know, it's not only that we couldn't authenticate the diary, it's also that, you know, you can't authentic authenticate the events being described in the diary. 
Um, it's very salacious stuff. I'm not sure I'm comfortable speaking about this stuff over the air. However, uh, you know, it's almost we were put in a position. What are we supposed to do? Um, we turned the diary over to authorities and that apparently was not good enough. You talk about the, uh, the laptop with Hunter Biden. I mean, that was something that the New York Times apparently recently has now acknowledged as legitimate. Um, so uh, the New York Times also acknowledged that the DOJ's action on us was highly unusual. So you're seeing kind of a consensus formed on some of these issues. And hopefully we need more journalists, more individuals, the freedom of press crowd. Uh, we need them to speak up on this. RC, if this were to have happened, you say it doesn't happen to CNN and the New York Times. Of course, I believe you. Uh, they wouldn't stand for it as you are not standing for it. But I believe that if the FBI had raided the homes and the Southern District of New York had got all these secret uh, warrants or orders to spy, I believe you would have heard from, for example, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. I believe you would have heard from all sorts of journalism professors, ethics professors. Um, there would have been call the calls for inquiries, judicial inquiries, maybe a congressional inquiry. A lot of people who care about the independence of journalists and protecting the First Amendment would have been rightfully outraged had this happened to, say, CNN or The New York Times. Have you at Project Veritas received any support from free speech groups or journalistic groups? Um, have they come to your aid in a way that we know they would have come to the aid of CNN? Well, that's a good question, Ezra. It would be nice to see more support from some of these organizations. Um, some of these organizations, however, have spoke up in our support. The American Civil Liberties Union yesterday uh, issuing a statement calling for the Department of Justice to immediately halt their review of seized devices and communications, calling this a suppress, uh, calling this a suppression, excuse me, of these warrants, uh, unprecedented action. Um, in, in the past, the Reporters Committee actually filed um, something to the court on our behalf, calling for more transparency on this matter. But again, it would be great to see more support the Office of Government Accountability. There's a litany of other freedom of press. There are dozens of these or so organizations and they have not spoken up on our, on our behalf. And aside from a few individuals in the media, which I do give them credit, mainstream media journalists has spoken about this matter. There's been largely silence on this. So I hope other reporters who are listening on to this is aware that you know, the pendulum often swings back and forth. There's always going to be someone who is in charge of government who, quote, may see your activities as a threat. And other journalists should speak up about this. This is an abridgment to the first to the First Amendment. And if they don't speak up on this, they will be next. Well, you're so right. I have to tell you, I am pleasantly surprised to hear that the ACLU and the Reporters Committee have said something, and that's better than nothing, and that's better than what we get up here in Canada. Um, we have uh, another clip. There was a little bit of in, in that, in that uh, presentation that we showed uh, narrated by James O'Keefe. Here's a little bit more for our viewers of the FBI raid, and I find this terrifying. I mean, I should just say, if there's any Canadian Mounties watching, I have no files at home. I don't take my work at home, so please don't raid uh, my home. Uh, don't raid our office either, by the way, but I should just tell you in advance, don't come to my home. Uh, so here's uh, a clip, shocking, of the FBI raid in progress. Let's take a look. <laughs> Uh, I'm 
Unbelievable. I think that was the kitchen there. Imagine storming in the house. It sounds like there's other family members there. Hands up! Hands up! Where? Let me see your hands. Just absolutely shocking and terrifying. You know, Russia's in the news a lot these days. That looks like something that would be done to a independent news organization or an independent political party in Russia. The fact that that's happening in New York um, is shocking to me, and I think it should shock everyone who cares about freedom. Absolutely. I mean, the images speak for themselves. I mean, you, you, you pointed to the hands up, hands up, which kind of demonstrates that in a moment note, in a moment's notice, anything is possible. But further, in addition to that, you see officers with their hands clutched on their weapons. I mean, this is an American journalist here. This is an American journalist who would have willfully showed up at any court proceeding and surrendered information if that's what it came to. So this is you're right to say this is not the kind of treatment you would see from in America. You also have to consider, Ezra, the, the Department of Justice, Merrick, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, just eight months ago, did a whole rollout on new guidelines and how the press would be treated. And he talked about how, you know, uh, there would be uh, uh, certain tactics that wouldn't be used against journalists. Well, look at the tactics that were used against these journalists. It seems that Merrick Garland needs to answer for himself on this matter because he can't have it both ways and pretend to protect press, press freedom and at the same time have a pre-dawn raid show me your hands with hands clutched on weapons. Unbelievable. Well, RC, it's such a pleasure to meet you. Thank you. We're fans of Project Veritas and have followed your successes over the years. I hope we can have you on. Again, you guys are always the front line, not only of journalism, but then defending that journalism. I remember last time I spoke to James O'Keefe, um, he told me just how much time and money you guys have to spend defending your right to do journalism, and, and we wish you great success. What's the best way for us to follow this? What's uh, Project Veritas's uh, best website? Well, Project Veritas, we are still on Telegram. We're on some social media. We're banned on Twitter. But you can find all of our stories directly at projectveritas.com. Ezra, thanks for having me on, and it's good to see Rebel News is still surviving. Right on. Thanks, my friend. Well, you keep up the great work down there, and all the best to your team. We have it, R.C. Maxwell, press secretary for Project Veritas. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Your viewer mail. Matthew Cowan says the Quebec government is telling their healthcare system to prepare for an incoming sixth wave and begin campaigning and preparing for fourth doses due to the BA.2 Omicron subvariant. Um, yeah, it wouldn't shock me at all, but uh, as we showed you the other day, the Quebec government announced a curfew. They just made the political decision, and then they hunted around for some medical justification. They couldn't find a single person to justify it. The Quebec government's out of control, but I, uh, I don't know if you remember, we used to have Eric Duham on from time to time. He's now the leader of the Quebec Conservative Party that is now in second place. And he is probably the party leader in Canada. He's got one seat in the National Assembly there. Uh, other than Maxime Bernier, who doesn't have any seats, the People's Party, 
Eric Duhem is the most principled, vocal, and relentless opponent of lockdowns in this country. It's incredible to watch. He's got 55,000 members of his party in Quebec, which would be like 200,000 nationally, uh, proportionately. He's extremely principled. He's very smart. He's a great communicator. And he is in second place in the polls. I'm very excited by him. Pablo Ro Rojas says, uh, nice haircut, Ezra. Fauci is on the decline for being a charlatan. Um, you know what? It's very generous of you, very charitable of you to say this is a nice haircut. Um, I will accept that compliment. And um, I think you're overdoing it, though. But thank you. Um, I think the Democrats don't know to, what to do with Fauci because on the one hand, if they keep this lockdown fear mongering, they're going to I think they're going to get really punished by voters in the fall. On the other hand, as we've just discussed with Jerry Diaz, it's such a huge business for so many of them uh, and not just the financial business, the celebrity. Don't think that Anthony Fauci isn't having the time of his life. He's living his best life. He's a star. I've even heard him described as a sex symbol. You think he wants to stop talking about covid? Christopher McDonald says Marxists are using a vulnerable group to push their agenda. They don't care about trans people. I think you're probably right. I think they're just looking to pit us against each other and also to distract us from more important things. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with this video of the day from Sid. Very strange case. A bus catches fire right behind Pastor Arthur Pavlovsky's church. That don't seem right. Here, take a look at the video. I'll see you tomorrow. My wife, my wife runs the daycare downstairs, and uh, I was walking upstairs, uh, and I noticed uh, kind of a shadow of a flame. So it was a bit strange to me. So I came out, just opened the door, and all I saw was an inferno straight on my face. So I had to kind of slam the door because I, I, I was a bit shocked. The whole place was, the whole car was on flames. So I closed it, called 911, went downstairs, got the kids evacuated, and then the rest is history. Sydney Fitzgerald with Rebel News here, and we're at the scene of the crime, it seems. We're at Pastor Archer Pulowski's church. Pastor Archer Pulowski, as you may know, remains behind bars. It's been over 40 days now. There was a bail hearing, I believe, today uh, that took place in Lethbridge. But as you can see behind me, it appears the school bus behind Pastor Archer Pulowski's church has been set ablaze. There is speculation that this was an arson attack, especially given in the past the Pulowskis have had to deal with arson attacks previously. But as well, it's been claimed that this was caused by four children under the age of 10 who went into the bus and proceeded to play with matches and unintentionally started a fire they could not control. The school bus belonged to a daycare that shares a building with Pastor Arthur Pulowski's church. Though the daycare operates without affiliation with Pastor Arthur Pulowski in the church, but nonetheless, this church building facilitates both, and if one were to be set ablaze, both would be set ablaze. And you can see just how close the school bus is to the church. It was a very close call. That could have lit up the building. Thank God it didn't, I guess you could say, but we're going to keep you guys up to date. We're going to hear from the Pulowskis themselves what they make of what we're seeing behind us. Well, I know that the school bus behind our church caught on fire or was set on fire uh, more likely because, I, I mean, uh, how fast it burned and uh, just, just, just from the looks of it, uh, it was not an accident. It looked very purposeful, like it was arson. Um, I'm not sure why anyone would do that. Um, uh, I mean, 
I can I can assume that it was a hate motivated attack. Uh, we have seen many churches in the last uh, year attacked and vandalized. So I, I believe it was a, a hate motivated attack, and uh, it could could also be constituted as attempted murder because I mean that church also has daycare in the basement sometimes, and it's a church, so uh, the building could have easily caught on fire and uh, people could have gotten hurt or died. So um, it's, it's absolutely horrible. Jason Kenney, of course, put out his recent announcement uh, where he was investing in religious infrastructure. And today, Alberta's government is keeping a commitment to help groups protect themselves from hate-motivated crimes. The Alberta Security Infrastructure Program will provide funds to vulnerable community facilities that have experienced or are at risk of being targeted by violence or vandalism. This funding will help to pay for security enhancements to their facilities and to provide training for their staff. So I'm pleased to be here today to announce that the security infrastructure program is being expanded to a $5 million a year program. But I guess none of that really helped in your, your case. No, and uh, well, I, I hope that he he can help us out. I mean, obviously, this is an attack on a church. Um, if it won't, if it isn't deemed an accident, which I, I, I very highly doubt from the looks of it that it was an accident. So that means it was a hate-motivated attack on a church. So I'm uh, looking forward to Jason Kenny making a statement about that, about Pastor Archer's church being attacked uh, once again this time um, by arsonists. So I look forward to his contributions to our protection and uh, what he'll say and do about that. In the scenario that it was an accident, what, what would your message be in that, in that case? Um, well, if, if it is an accident, then, um, then I'm, I'm very glad that the church did not catch on fire, that um, nobody was hurt by the situation and um, yeah, I, I just, I hope nothing like this happens again. I'm, I'm very, very, very pleased that nobody was hurt. And of course, like I mentioned, Pastor Archer Pulowski remains behind bars. This is over 40 days now. And what does he get for that? He gets a burnt up school bus that could have taken down this building if things weren't uh, as timely as the response seems to have been. So if you want to help them and their legal defense right now, you go to savearter.com. I know the family would appreciate your support, especially in times like this. And we're going to stay tuned. We're going to see exactly what happens with this, uh, but that'll be for another update. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. For Rebel News, I'm Sydney Bizarre.